All right, so Luke chapter 14. Before I left you in June for many places of ministry and a little bit of vacation, I uh, introduced to you a conviction. And I introduced it in a way to say, number one, I want to challenge you. No, no, number one, I want to encourage you. Number two, I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you because you're in a culture that is rapidly heading in a destructive, trending pathway. Things are not getting better. They're clearly culturally becoming worse as it relates to the things that matter the most. From a Christian vantage point, our culture is in decline. People are challenged. And there's a tendency in our humanity and in our Christianity to feel impotent, to feel almost like we're a victim. There's nothing we can do to prevent what is happening in our culture, maybe even in our neighborhood, maybe even in our family. Things are going so fast, so powerful, a Christian can feel impotent. There's nothing I can do. Clearly, politics, in terms of conservative values and priorities, is in a whole new zone. Doesn't seem, we can't seem to find leadership in Washington or Sacramento that's courageous, convictional, rooted in the law, rooted in biblical principle, Christian virtue. It's challenging. And what I wanted to do before I left you back in the middle of June is to encourage you with something Jesus said to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want, to, I want to circle back to that as a reconnector before we jump back into James here in the weeks ahead to challenge you and remind you, to encourage you and to coach you. Jesus said, Sermon on the Mount, seated with his disciples, here's how you get blessed. Here are the criteria that invite the blessing of God. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The 11 things, he says, that invite blessing from heaven. And then these two categories of declaration truth that says, this is how, as a kingdom citizen, you can be a blessing. You can live out who you are. Well, who are you? This is what Jesus said. A declaration, present active indicative. This is the way it is. You are the salt of the earth. You are. Not you might be. If you're a kingdom citizen, you're salt. And you are the light of the world. You are. And if you fulfill your purpose, just like salt does and just like light does, you will have impact. You are not impotent. Salt is powerful and valuable. That's what we talked about. Salt was used as currency. Salt was used to pay your taxes. Salt was used for wages for Roman soldiers. You're not worth your salt came from the idea someone not fulfilling their work, their purpose. You are the salt of the earth. You have value You have a contribution to make. You're a difference maker. And we talked about impactful, eternal influence. Not because of something you're not, but because of something you are. You are something, Jesus said. 
Therefore, you need to be something. Living out what Jesus said you are, salt and light. And the guarantee is your life will mean something. So wherever you line up this week, whatever neighborhood you come from, whatever workplace you go to, whatever zone of relationship you're a part of, you are something, therefore you need to be something. And the guarantee is from an eternal impact reality, your life will mean something. We talked about salt, what it is, picture of purity. It's a calibrator. It helps people know by virtue of the the whiteness of it, its purifying effect. It's a symbol of purity. You're to be a picture of purity by the way you live, walk, and talk. Words, attitudes, and actions. You're to be an influencer just by your presence. It's a powerful preservative. Salt has the ability to retard corruption and rot. There's a reason our culture is rotting. Part of it is we're not doing the impacting the way we are capable of as the church. You are a provider of pleasure. You're a seasoning to life. You make it better. Salt and seasoning makes it better. And you know what else salt is? It's a provoker of thirst. People ought to get thirsty for God because they are in your presence, you making them thirsty by your words, your attitudes, your actions, the character of your life, the joy of your life, the convictions of your life ought to motivate and inspire people to consider the credibility of a God who makes claims, the credibility of a God who makes promises. The gospel of God that transforms people, that offers a kind of life that cannot be secured in the world in which we live via the vehicles and tools that the world typically pursues in order to find life and fulfillment. You're the credibility to the gospel by how you live. That's what we were talking about last Sunday night. That's the husbands, just like Christian wives, make God wantable. And they make the gospel credible. The way you live at home not only affects your children, it affects every eyewitness to who God is and what the gospel can do. That's what salt does, and that's what light does. And what I wanted to circle back to is some applicational passages that are meant to help encourage and challenge you to maximize your influence potential. Because you have influence. You can either leverage it, maximize it, or forfeit it. You are the salt of the earth. You are. Maximizing that and the influence associated with that is the priority and purpose of my encouragement to you today. And housed in this is the recognition that in James' words, you're to prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers, not just enthusiastic note-takers. Doers take the truth and work it out in real time in their life. 
Prove yourselves doers, not merely hearers, lest you do what? If you're a hearer and not a doer, what are you? You deceive yourself. You're irrational. Paralegizomai, you're outside of reason. It's insane for a Christian to hear what's being said from the Word of God and not find a way to apply it. That's insanity. It's irrational because the Bible is meant to be, listen to me, life transformational. The way I live tomorrow ought to be impacted by what I hear, learn, and receive today. Luke chapter 14. Here's a verse related to salt that I wanted to promote with you. Maximum impact is my title today. A couple of concepts. First concept is potency. Salt can be tasteless. It can lose its properties. And what Jesus said, if you've lost your capacity to represent the properties of salt, you're good for nothing. Salt needs to be potent to be powerful. The second idea I want to promote with you today by way of application is not just the big idea of potency, being high-potency salt, but proximity. Salt needs to be in contact with what it is seeking to influence. Penetrating proximity was necessary for the salt to leverage its influence. So number one, the first question is, I am the salt of the earth. How potent am I? Number two, how present am I in proximity to the community that I want and seek to influence? How much have I penetrated that community or that family or that relationship in real time to have a real impact? The third word I want to offer to you is strategy, purposeful strategy. And I discovered a few verses over the last few weeks that I want to highlight for you. This is one of them. And I want to challenge you to be what you are, reconnecting this to what we challenged you with back in June, to remind you of it and to ask you to apply it. Verse 34, Luke 14, here it is. Jesus Christ is the spokesperson. These are words coming from his lips. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt, which is good and valuable, has become tasteless, it's lost its potency, its capacity, its properties, with what will it be seasoned? How can it be restored? Now watch this, verse 35. It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. One of Jesus' favorite way of saying, if you're willing to pay attention, listen up, hear it, and housed in the hearing of it, is the doing of it. 
the living out of it. I want you to notice verse 35 as it relates to proximity. It is useless if it's lost its potency for what? For the soil or for the manure pile. Salt was used as an ingredient to put on the soil to enhance its fertile production, its fruitfulness. Salt had to be applied to the soil. It had to be connected to it. It had to be poured on it, distributed in it, in order for the soil to produce its potential in terms of good, fertile fruit. Number two, the manure pile. You do understand that the domiciles in which people lived at that time did not have the conveniences we have. And typically you would go out back to do what people do when they need relief. And after finishing doing what people do for relief, there would be a canister of salt. And what would happen domestically and practically, a tool would be taken, a spoon or a small shovel, and you would get the canister and you would take the salt, and in order to prevent bacteria and all of the things that happen as a consequence of human natural activity, trying to pick every kind of word I can without saying it, (laughs) you got the idea. You poured salt on it. And based on factors, it determined how much salt you put on it. The more needful, the more the sense of corruption and putrefaction and the smells, the odors and all of that, the more of it that you sensed, the greater the volume of the salt. And the salt didn't do its job in the container. It did the job when the salt was poured on the corrupt focus of that salt to prevent decay, bacteria, and the smells associated with the manure pile. Proximity is essential for impact and influence, whether it's for good or to prevent corruption, injury, and harm, bacteria, disease. What Luke is reporting in the words of Jesus is salt had to be, listen to me, applied both to categories of growth and fruitfulness, the soil, or to categories that were meant to retard and prevent corruption and destruction. It had to be applied. You've heard the term, not worth a grain of salt. A grain of salt is not enough to inhibit or curb corruption. The more corrupt the culture is, the more corrupt the person is, the more corrupt the 
The category is the more salt is required to prevent and preserve and inhibit corruption, an impactful, negative, spiritual reality. Proximity. If you're going to preserve meat, it's got to be saturated. The salt and the solution has to penetrate the fibers of the meat in order for the protection of corruption to occur. So Christian citizen, kingdom citizen, if you are going to have impact to cause things to grow or to retard the corruption that is in the culture in which you live, the things that smell morally, the things that reflect everything but virtue, you're going to need to get engaged in order to prevent the multiplication and extension of that corruption. You can't be passive. I don't know if I said it when I was here a month and a half ago with you. You've got to get out of this salt shaker in order to do what salt does. You can't be in a Christian bunker and make a difference because you're the salt of the earth. And the salt in the shaker is designed to get out of the shaker. The salt in the shaker is designed to get into on the soil that is to produce virtue and fruitful crop that people can enjoy and benefit from. The salt in the salt shaker needs to get out and get on the corrupt places in our culture in order to inhibit and retard the destructive potential housed in those realities. Christian citizens cornerstone Christian citizens, Grace Church Christian citizens need to be proactive in pursuing ways to get engaged where the work needs to be done for the benefit of the culture, both its good and to prevent what is not good, proximity. I want you to look at the first word in verse 34. Do you see it? Therefore. Therefore connects the salt to what Jesus has just been talking about. He's just been talking about the character of real Christian discipleship. He's got a lot of followers. But he's defining what a true follower, a disciple of his, is characterized by. And it's very black and white. It's very declarative. It's, it's talking about the character of a Christian disciple. And I want to add this idea to that, the word therefore. Therefore has to do with salt that is good. Therefore has to do with the potential that the good should be good salt is useless because it is not characterized by true discipleship. Disciples are salty. And that's good. But if a disciple is making a claim without the realities of that claim, that discipleship is tasteless. It's useless. Because claiming to be a Christian and not living as a salty Christian has no benefit by way of impact and productivity. 
Verse 25, let's read the context. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned, that's Jesus, and said to them, the large crowds, the followers. Verse 26, clarifying statement, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now look up for a minute. Disciple. Disciple is a follower. Methetes, a learner. Biblically, a disciple was somebody who came to Jesus. They repented. They trusted. They followed and obeyed. And they entered into the mission of Jesus. A biblical disciple is someone who turns from their own direction and they follow Jesus like Zacchaeus, like Matthew the tax collector, like the fisherman in the boat. What I used to be, what I used to do, I'm turning from that and I'm committed to following you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you in order to become like you and in order to enter into the mission That involves your kingdom and your priorities. You cannot be my disciple unless you are potent with this priority. Christ first over people, family, or friends. You cannot be my disciple. This is a comparative. The word hate is by comparison to your passion for Christ. Christ has to precede as priority. This is the passion that makes a Christian potent. Makes him tasty, not tasteless. Christ first. Christ over my family. Christ over the things that typically relationally are most important to me. Christ first over my family. My friends. There is no potent Christian when there's competition between the priority of Christ and the priority of people in your life, not Christ. We were sitting at uh, my dinner table yesterday. Uh, My son has been married now for a little over a year, and we're talking about husband and wife things because I just taught on husband and wife things in church last Sunday night, and we were reflecting on that. And somehow we got to the Genesis 2 passage where it says, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother. And the word leave means abandon and forsake. And the question, how's that I ask every couple I marry, so how far do you have to go to leave? Out of the tent? Out of the neighborhood? Out of the city? Out of the state? Out of the country? How far do you have to go? You know what the answer to that is? as far as it takes. Because leaving means I'm coming out from under a previous trusted authority to establish a new authority, and I'm coming out from under a priority commitment to that family, and I'm establishing a new priority commitment, my family and my wife. And my son Parker said, you know, that's been so easy for me, abandoning you and mom. He said, I thought that would be hard because he lives with us and has 
his first 25 years because of illness. And you would think that bond and that, that relationship, that connection could be a competitor to the new person in his life, his wife. But he said, you know what? It's obvious to me that I have to listen to this. I have to pick her over you. You know what's not obvious to most Christians? Is you have to pick him over them. Their affection, their affirmation, their applause. Intimacy with them that can compete with intimacy with him. Time with them as, re- as compared to time with him. Listen, you're the salt of the earth and you are not salty unless he's your priority. Can you say amen to that? It's relational. Listen, if I love my parents, and I do. We were just in Arkansas with Karen and her parents last week. She loves her parents. Matter of fact, that's real obvious to me as a husband when we visit because her attention is toward mom and dad, as you would expect. Because these are premier priority relationships to her. If you love someone, you prioritize them, yes? Listen, potent Christianity, salt that's potent and powerful, transformational and impactful, is the kind that says undeniably, compared to anything else, he's first and foremost. And if you compare anything relationally to him, it doesn't compare at all. It's like hate. It's like it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant which is not meant to say I don't care for them. It's meant to say how much I care for him. Therefore, salt is good. Therefore, if it's potent, if therefore it's potent if it prioritizes Christ first over people. Look at what he says at the end of this section, verse 32, or excuse me, verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple, he says it again, who does not give up all his own possessions. Christ first over possessions, not just Christ first over human relations, people. There's no thing, there's no target to acquire, there's no place to ascend to by way of prestige or responsibility, possessions and all the things that attend to it, none of it can be a priority over the priority of pursuing him and living for him. Potent salt, salt that is good, is salt that has chosen him over any other material thing. I don't make my decisions based on the profit margin. I base my decisions over what promotes the things that matter to Christ. That's potent. That's a life that'll make a difference. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is Christ over yourself, your own passions, your own priorities, not just people in your life, not just things in your life, but your life. You're deferring to him even at cost. That's the cross. 
Now listen, Jesus talks about evaluating this cost. It's no small cost. It's a great evaluation for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. His his pursuit of Christ was premature. He wasn't willing to pay out the known because he hadn't assessed it and he hadn't made a resolution to pursue it. He's not potent because he doesn't understand and he hasn't made the decisions to say, Christ first over people, Christ first over myself, Christ first over my possessions, even at cost. I've waited out and I've decided. You know what that person is? Potent. They've waited out. They've made a great evaluation, an honest evaluation, and they made a great decision. I'm looking at him. I'm looking at what a life is as it relates to living for him, and I'm choosing that. And when a Christian is a disciple that's potent, you are powerful. Let me give you some strategy as we come to the latter part of this strategy. Turn over with me to Proverbs chapter 21. Purposeful strategy, two things, if you're taking notes. Thing number one, purposeful strategy, is a purposeful strategy as salt. Listen, to ruin them. Purposeful strategy, category number two, to win them. Purposeful strategy. I want you to look at this proverb. It's been a focus of meditation recently for me, and I want to leverage it as a context for strategy. Watch this, verse 12. The righteous one considers the house of the wicked, turning the wicked to ruin. The righteous one considers. The word consider means gives attention to, pays intentional focus on. This is head up, eyes open, This is someone who's alert, someone who's aware. The righteous man considers. He pays attention. He recognizes the house of the wicked. That's where the wicked... Let's talk wicked for a minute. And When I think wicked, I think of drug trafficking, human trafficking. I think of wicked, wicked. And that is wicked. But the biblical word for wicked is someone who rebels against God, perverts God's desires and ways, and has an influence, an impact on those with whom they have to do. They're an agent of lawlessness, and they promote lawlessness. They are God-violating. They are people corrupting, 
And they use enterprises in order to do that. That's their house. That's their base of operation. And the righteous man identifies that person who is God-violating, people-corrupting. That's where they live. That's where they work. That's where they house their enterprise. He considers that, and what does he do with that? He overthrows that base of operation. He turns it to ruin. He undermines... Now, I'm not, listen, I'm not saying get gasoline and dynamite. I'm not talking about arson and burning it down. A righteous man undermines, overthrows, perverts, and ruins the enterprise of a wicked man. He sees it and says, that's a corrupt source. That's a fountainhead of injury. That's hurtful. I see it, I'm alert to it, and I'm going to act on it. I'm going to ruin that guy's enterprise. It's no longer going to be a source of injury in this community. I'm going to be proactive. I'm the salt of the earth, and I'm going to apply my salt to that corruption and need. I, uh, I went to Alaska with Karen right after I was with you in June, and had the opportunity of seeing the big state of Alaska and also visiting the big bass pro shop in Anchorage. <laughs> Have you ever been to one of those? It's an Alabama thing, but it's a really an Alaska thing. Man, everything you'd ever want for the great outdoors, killing stuff, keeping warm. I mean, it's there. And they had a big sale table in the middle of the bass pro shops. And it's for sale, listen to this, Bug dash a dash salt. Bug assault. And bug assault is a weapon that you put salt in and you fire this weapon at flies. For $34, it was on sale, normally $44.95. For $34.95, you could get a weapon called bug assault. And you load a little canister on the top. Anybody know about this? Oh, you've, you've left me behind. You should. I'd never seen one. And you can get a laser. You can go on to Amazon and you can buy a bug assault and a little laser that attaches to the end. And it makes fly killing fun. The laser, if you get the laser, you can move from three to five feet to ten feet and hit your target. It's good for spiders, too. Like, if we had one up here, I could take him out without a chair. (laughs) It's a pinch of salt, and it kills flies, which are sources of what? Corruption and disease. And they tell you that on the box. That's why you want to buy this thing, because flies are notorious for distributing disease and bacteria and all kinds of larvae and maggots and all kinds of things. So you got to get a bug assault. That's what they say. I would say that, too, if you like the fun of it. But the point is, in order to kill the source of corruption, you've got to intentionally aim at it, and you've got to apply salt to it. Karen and I stayed on Tudor Avenue in Anchorage 
at uh, Aspen Suites, just a little hotel with a kitchenette for the week. And across the street from our hotel was a Starbucks. I thought, how convenient. And so, you know, most of us need, like I do, something like Starbucks to get the day started. And uh, so I, I walked over to this Starbucks across the street, and it was the most decorated Starbucks I'd ever seen anywhere. And I'm a regular at Starbucks. Now, I know some of you are rolling your eyes because that's not gourmet coffee. That's for the shallow people. But <laughs> I like their coffee. And I roll into this Starbucks, and on the front of the Starbucks was, I walk in, I didn't roll in, and, and they had banners, big banners. And, and by the drive through they had a bigger banner. And when you walk in, it was like they were having a birthday party with banners. Do you know what color the banners were? Rainbows. It was the most decorated rainbow Starbucks, really any business I'd ever seen. All of the baristas but one had a rainbow mask. In Alaska, you didn't have to wear a mask, but the, the business people did. And so they all had their rainbow mask. And let me tell you what they weren't doing. They were not celebrating a promise of divine protection. They were actually celebrating dysfunction, perversion, and rebellion. And I walked in there, and I wanted my coffee, and I wasn't willing to get my car to drive somewhere else. And I noticed something. You know, when you go to Starbucks, they have to be nice to you. They get your name, they write it on the cup, and, you know, it's, it's part of their shtick. Hey, this is the neighborhood place. You're a part of our neighborhood. It was not that way. Nobody said anything to me. Now listen, I grant the fact that you can't see much more than eyes, but the eyes didn't seem friendly and the place didn't seem warm. It wasn't your neighborhood barista shop where you wanted to be. And this is, this is the truth. This is what I said to myself. This is the most unfriendly Starbucks I've ever been in and I'm not coming back. Secondly, this place is celebrating things that dishonor the Lord and the culture. That's what I thought. I'll find me a Christian coffee shop. There's got to be one in Anchorage. Do you know what the convicting thought was? So, Harry, what these banners are is a neon sign that says corruption. What these banners say, if there's any place in Anchorage that needs a dose of salt, it's Starbucks on Tudor Avenue. So you don't need to be seeking out a Christian coffee shop. You need to be bringing Christian to this coffee shop. So if you look on my phone, I got pictures of all the people who work there with their little name tags so that I can bring salt and light to that coffee shop in need of it by calling their name to God and calling them by name when I see them. I'm there all week. I can go over and over and over. I can do what I do. And then when I talked to the church on Sunday, which I did, I said, I'm recruiting. I don't know where you buy your coffee, but I want you to go to my coffee shop because one grain of salt isn't enough. I want to target 
I want a tag team. I need partners who are going to bring the light of the gospel, what you can see on a face, what you can hear in words. I want Christians to join me to focus on this business. And I'm leaving town on Wednesday, so you're going to have to carry the ball for me. The righteous one considers the house of the wicked, and he turns it to ruin. How do you do that? Here's my practical strategy. You identify them. You team up in order to undermine their influence. Listen, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. My problem isn't those baristas. My problem is the agent of darkness that sits behind all of that. They're not my enemy. They are my mission field. Listen, Christians need to engage collectively and corporately to say, we're going to tag team. We're going to pray for them by name. We're going to call their name and invite God to do for them what they can't do for themselves. We're going to engage them and try to, and try to communicate the love of Christ by our care, concern, and our winsome kindness. Turn over to one more passage, Titus chapter 3. And this is the strategy to win them. Titus chapter 3. Now you guys know about Crete. Titus is sent to Crete to appoint elders. Crete was one of the most debauched cultures in the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire. It was Grecian in culture. They were, by their own admission, less than virtuous. Matter of fact, chapter 1 says it this way, verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, that's animals, with wicked intentions and destructive intentions, and they're lazy gluttons. And then Paul says this, this testimony is what? True. These people are corrupt and carnal and destructive. And to this church, or to this leader who will appoint leaders in the church, this is what Paul tells Titus to tell God's people in order to impact a culture that's dark, corrupt, untruthful, animalistic by way of their passions and their pursuits. This is what he says, chapter 3. Remind them, verse 1, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. To malign no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, two things I want you to notice. This is a busted culture. This is a corrupt culture. You tell God's people on the island of Crete, in the midst of all this debauchery and this cultural, destructive community, you tell them, do good and do it with a good attitude. Good deeds, deeds of benefit and kindness, And do it in a way that's gracious. Malign no one. 
be peaceable, gentle, watch this, showing every consideration for all men. Christians ought not be ugly if they want to be salty. Christians ought to do good. Not require good of others first, but to do good themselves and to deliver it with grace and kindness. Why? Look at verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's how we used to be. So when you're dealing with Starbucks on Tudor Avenue, don't forget they're not the enemy. You do good to them. You display a gracious attitude toward them because you used to be, listen to me, like them. You were rebelling. You were hateful. And God displayed his mercy toward you and that ought to govern and guide your response to them. Verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to what? His, say it, mercy. I was guilty. His kindness pursued me. My kindness ought to be toward pursuing them. His mercy was towards me. I ought to have mercy towards them. I tasted it. I need to display it so that they will consider the God who gives them potentially what he has given me. He saved us by the washing of regeneration. That's the miraculous new life birth. By the renewing of the Holy Spirit, I've been transformed, not reformed, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, how? By His grace, not my merit, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now watch verse 8, and I'll close with this. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God, that's Christians on the island of Crete, will be careful, intentional, purposeful, to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for who? For men, for people. All right, let me conclude with this. Here's the purposeful strategy. Target, head up, lock on, the laser, lock on, Team up and do good. And do it with a gracious attitude that motivates people to consider a God who is worthy of worship and has provided mercy for you. Do good and do it graciously. And watch what the salt of your life, which is good, Watch how it fertilizes the soil and watch how it curbs corruption because you intend to, you're in proximity, you're potent, you're a Christian first over all things. He's supreme and he's superior and you're making that God credible and you're making that God, that gospel believable. You are the salt of the earth. Get on the soil. And if necessary, get on the manure pile. 
to the end that the kingdom of God can be advanced and the glory of God can be seen and known. Can you say amen to that? All right, happy August. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning. Thank you for the challenge of Proverbs, talking about a righteous man identifying and dealing with the enterprise that promotes darkness, and I pray that we would tear it down through the way we display Christ, the way we pray, the way we bring our felt, tasty presence into those communities and spaces and those people groups that need influence. And Lord, give us wisdom for that, to the end that we are who you say you are, we are, and so that we can display with credibility who you say you are. You're the greatest and the best, and I commit our fellowship group to you in this Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.